0: Hey y'all. Oh, I missed y'all. It's Black Fluid Poet, aka John S. Blake, coming to you live from my humble abode of books. During this pandemic paradise where the quarantine is getting cut. Lord, I've been in crowded spaces where nobody's wearing a mask. And I don't know how to feel. I mean I wasn't wearing one either. I didn't know if I should be in trouble, they should be in trouble. Um I saw an interesting meme, though. It said, uh, how, do you, how can you tell between those that are vaccinated and those that aren't? And, it, and someone said, oh, that's easy. Just ask them who won the election. <laughs> That'll tell you right off the bat. <clears throat> so um, I've taken a big break from social media, um, first by accident, and then it turned into this serendipitous experience. So Friday night, I dropped my phone on its face, so the case couldn't save it. The screen shattered, no touchscreen, couldn't take any phone calls, text messages, nothing. So I had to wait until Monday to get another phone. So I got another phone, and here I am. Uh, The other thing is that I've been in a really dark place. I think that it's my... If I had to point to something, I think it would be a safe assumption that my my news feed on TikTok is just hella depressing. Um, I think it's just the stuff I focus on. You know, I focus on politics, world news, you know, anti-racism, you know, feminism. So, you know, there's just this plethora, this, this tsunami of problems that comes with that, you know? So, you know, I spent two weeks talking about Palestine and then there was another police shooting and then you find out this guy got beat to death in jail and then Tulsa came and I'm like, the, the 100th anniversary of Tulsa, I'm like, I can't, I can't, um, So I had to take even yesterday off. Like I was going to get on yesterday and, you know, chew the cloth with y'all and, you know, hee 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 it up. But um, between uh, the 100th anniversary of Tulsa and me feeling a bunch of stuff about pride, which is really what I want to talk about, um, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready, especially because there's a lot of people who are like, where have you been? Um, Rightfully so. But I could tell you the bad news is I've been in a dark place, right? But the good news is I have to be in that dark place in order to write this memoir. Well, a lot of it anyway. The other interesting news is um, it's a struggle to navigate this pain. You know, I have to, in many ways, not necessarily re traumatize myself, but I do have to take myself back to the events, experiences, and emotions that sometimes didn't feel so great. And, um, that's been a challenge, you know. I've I've been procrastinating a lot with my writing because I don't want to feel what I'm feeling now. But now I feel it and I'm ready. Um, I feel it so much that it is 7.42 in the morning and I have yet to go to sleep. I think I ate a burrito yesterday and I ate something on Sunday. Um... In other words, my depression is in full swing, and uh, it's taken a lot, but you know, my friend Carrie came over, and she helped clean my house. My house was in shambles. She came over, and she helped me clean. She got me motivated. Uh, well, that's what she calls it. I said she was being quite controlling, but she came over. She helped me clean, and... Um, I, I got to tell you, so many people have reached out and put money into the GoFundMe and sent me Cash App and Venmo. I was down to $0 on Friday and that was before I dropped my phone. So I'm, I'm going to put the phone on TikTok just so you can see how bad this sucker was. I was mad as hell. Um, so I was able to get the phone in a serendipitous way because that wasn't part of the plan, right? Um Paid off some bills and I was down to zero dollars, man. And uh, I was getting nervous. And then, you know, people on social media came through. Um, they put a lot of uh, donations towards well, the GoFundMe. The GoFundMe is up to $1,700. And that's helped. I gave a 1000 of that to my landlord. Um, and I also had to buy a bicycle because I have no mode of travel out here. And, you know, it's not like New York where you just put your hand out and get a car. And these Ubers are whipping my ass. Look, these Uber bills got hands. You hear me? So I can't be expecting people to donate to me staying home to write this memoir and then blow it on $20 rides to Target, $10 ride to Walmart, $20 ride home from Target, $10 ride home from Walmart. So that had to stop. Um, The other thing I have to tell you about being in this dark place, y'all, is that I'm scared. Um when I'm in this dark place that I have really worked hard to be out of I drink and I use drugs and I don't you know I don't sleep I don't eat and the, the not sleeping and not eating has already started and so I don't know how to navigate all this pain in a positive with with positivity and, and all my energy that keeps me out of my depression. I don't know how to write about it without taking myself there. Like I literally, when I write about something, I'm literally back at that place as a little kid staring at the walls, the TV, everything, and hearing sounds. And that stuff is tough. It's really tough. Every time I've tried to write this memoir, I've relapsed. Um, I had 12 years clean when I was halfway through this memoir, relapsed, um, at 10 years clean and I was writing a lot of poetry about my childhood, relapsed, um, so here I am hoping that, um, I will get it together, um, maybe make some meetings, get a new sponsor, stuff like that, um, but I really do need to get it together before this gets worse, so, I would like to talk to you about my experiences with gender fluidity. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about sexuality, at least my sexuality. um, But to keep it on what I really do have experience with is definitely being gender fluid. Being gender fluid has been a blessing and a curse simultaneously Um, I don't think I need to tell most people that. You already know the kind of hell that queer people deal with on a daily basis. So with that, I can tell you I've always been a little feminine. And one one of the best examples was I remember my mother catching me putting on her stockings. Now, I don't know why. I just knew stockings felt amazing. And I didn't know why. Boys weren't allowed to wear them. I always thought that women's shoes were way cooler than men's shoes. Men's shoes were boring and flat. Women's shoes had heels on them. You know what I mean? Um, And so, you know, my mom would occasionally catch me putting on her clothes. And granted, a lot of that is my mother was the only example in the house of an adult. My dad wasn't there. I would have loved to put on my dad's jacket or suit or hat, but it just wasn't available. You know? Um... So I don't think that was the beginning of my gender fluidity. I just think that was a kid wanting to dress up like the adult in the house, you know, to be the boss. And my mom was definitely the boss. But um, around first grade, it was 1976, this young woman comes in to um, give IQ tests and she was probably a college student Um and she called me in, and I, I do the, the IQ test with her, and I scored rather high. So she wanted to test me again. So I came. she came to my school, and the next day she tested me, and I tested really high again. Now, granted, that had a lot to do with me just being home and sick with asthma all the time, and all I did was read and, you know, watch educational programs on PBS. So anyway, I digress when we go over the IQ test the second time, she says, John, why do you sit that way? That way meaning my legs were crossed and my hands were limp. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, why do you sit kind of like a girl? And I said, I don't know. It's just comfortable. (laughs) I didn't know there was a way I was supposed to sit. Um, so, she she found this interesting and and she wanted to bring this to her boss who she, i guess she was in um she was in college for uh psychology so she brings in her professor and this is about an hour later her professor comes and wants to have this little discussion with me and um he's noticing how i'm sitting how i'm talking and so he tells the teacher something i go back to class I get home and my mother is like, why do they want me to come to the school? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. I swear. I scored really high on the test. So, so my mother goes into the school. And lo and behold, she's talking to the professor from the college and uh, the principal at the school. I have no idea what this is about. So my mom leaves. Um that was the next day, you know, and I get home from school that next day and my mom says, well, look, don't turn on the TV. We have to go. You have an appointment. And I said, an appointment? An appointment? What? She said, well, you have to go see a psychiatrist. And I said, I didn't know what that was. And she said, well, it's just somebody you talk to. Don't worry. And I said, okay. So we go. And it's the professor from the college. He's also working in his own private practice. And he calls me in and... Let me tell you something about being quick-witted. Now, granted, I was just a kid, but I knew when there was trouble afoot. You know what I'm saying? So, the psychiatrist asked me to draw a picture. Anything I want to draw, just draw a picture. And I said, okay. Now, I know... That if I draw what I really feel or what really is going on in my house, I won't go home. The police will be at my house. So I draw the happiest picture I could think of. And this was conscious. Like I knew if I didn't draw this picture right, there would be hell to pay. I knew if I drew a picture of my mother angry with a Bacardi bottle... (laughs) and my oldest brother nodding on a couch, and my sister pregnant at uh, 14 and yelling at my mother, my other brother beating his girlfriend, my father nowhere to be found, Uh, I would probably have stayed in his office permanently. Y'all hear me? I do mean forever. Forever. So um, I drew the happy yellow sun and the pretty blue sky and I drew everybody in my family holding hands and he was like, oh, this is a really pretty picture and I said, thank you and I told him who everybody was, yada, yada, yada and he said, he, he talked to me a little bit and he goes, okay, well, thank you, John, that's, that's it, that's all I'm going to talk to you about and I said, okay, great, I go back outside and he calls my mother in and my mother goes in there and they were talking probably 10 minutes before I hear a crash And the, uh, what, what would we say? The administrative assistant, you know, to the psychiatrist. She runs and throws the door open. And there is the psychiatrist trying to get his footing after my mother punched him so hard she sent him over his desk. And all I heard her scream was, my son is no faggot. Come on, John. And she snatched me by the arm and dragged me out of the building. And my mother didn't talk to me the whole way home. And I didn't ask because I knew, even at six, when my mother's angry, just leave her alone. So we get home, my mother makes dinner, she gets on the phone and she's talking to one of my other relatives and I find out through, you know being nosy, (laughs) that the psychiatrist told my mother that not only was I gay, but I was probably going to have a sex change by my 18th birthday. And he strongly suggests that I go to this special school where they help me stay a boy in Arizona somewhere for about 18 months. And that's when my mother sent him over his desk. 1976, being queer was... Dangerous, you know. Um, Now, granted, there have been queer people throughout the centuries, but in the 70s, there was a real crackdown on homosexuality, especially. We didn't have, you know, the wherewithal that we have now about how some people are gender fluid, some people are bisexual, some people are trans, you know. Um, So we only knew gay and straight. That was it. So evidently this psychiatrist thought I was gay and, uh, you know, wanted me to, he wanted me to go to rehab. My mom said, no, no, no. Um, so I didn't go and I kept going to school. Um, the principal did talk to my mother, um, cause she was concerned. The principal, after the psychiatrist told her that I might be gay, she was concerned. Um, And I did have a strange friendship with a boy named Peter. And I think I had a crush on him, but I'm not sure. But I know we were like thick as thieves. You you couldn't pull us apart. Anyway, so this doesn't get spoken about ever again. Um, We eventually moved from New York City to New Jersey. And I remember some kid called me fruity and I didn't even know why he just said I just think you're fruity I think you like boys and I was like I don't like boys and and it was it was you know I was like eight nine about nine um and I just thought that was really weird like fruity and I didn't even know what that meant like you're talking to a nine-year-old boy I didn't know what sex was yet It, it wasn't you know there was no porn hub and your own cell phone back then you know I didn't find that out for years and years later so I had no idea what it meant to be, quote, fruity, end quote, um, to be gay, to be homosexual. I had no idea what this stuff was. So I go home and I said to my mom, Mom, what's fruity? And my mom spits her coffee. What? And I said, some kid called me fruity. She says, oh, he thinks you're gay. Don't listen to him. And I said, "What? what's gay? You know, what does that mean? You know, like a homosexual, my mother said. And my mother had this philosophy. If you were old enough to ask the question, you were old enough to get the answer. So I'm like, okay, what's a homosexual? She's like, well, you know how, like, you want a girlfriend? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, homosexual men want a boyfriend. They don't want a girlfriend. And I said, well, that's gross. (laughs) Um, And my mother giggled. But that sat in my head because this wasn't... It probably wasn't the the first time I think that a kid had said something um, pertaining to my femininity. Um, and I was always like, am I gay? You know, <laughs> like I was a little kid, like, am I gay? I don't know. Why Why do I walk with limp wrists? Why, why do I switch my hips a little bit when I walk? What the hell? What's all that about, you know? Um, why don't I want to cut my hair? Um... Why do I like girls' clothes better than boys' clothes? So, I digress. The years go by. And then it got to be, I think I was like 13. And um, I wanted to talk to my mother about something. I think it was about going to a party or something. It was important to me. You know, at 13, getting to the party is important. This is a national fucking emergency. So, I go to my mom. Mom, I got to talk to you. And out of nowhere, she goes, what, are you gay? (laughs) I was like, what? No, I just want to know if you could take me to a party. And my mother goes, oh, thank God. And I, what? You know, so time goes on. Now, my mother ends up uh, in prison, all right? She gets arrested when I'm around 14. I can't remember the exact year. Don't hold it against me. Um... The years from 13 to 17 are really, really gray. But it was around 14 when my mother gets arrested. 14, 15. And um, while she's in jail, I was sexually assaulted. And um, I didn't tell anybody ever. Like until probably five years ago, I think. Was the first time I told someone um, maybe seven years ago, but I had held on to that for 40 years. Um, you well, know, almost 40 years. And around that time, I also started to get clean. Um, you know, I had a pretty bad drug habit, especially after my mom went to prison. So it was time to clean up. And, uh, I accidentally met some kids who were clean and sober and they helped me get clean. And, um, I was going to meetings and stuff, and uh, I wasn't sure if I was an addict, but the more I listened, the more I knew I was an addict, right? So, lo and behold, um, I come to the conclusion that I'm an addict. And I want to go visit my mom at the jail, and I want to tell her. So, I go visit my mom in jail. And now, mind you, my oldest brother has already died from AIDS. Uh, My father is HIV positive. Both my brother Frankie and my sister Lori are also HIV positive. And I shot dope with most of them. And to this day, I'm still HIV negative. Which, that is just the grace of the universe. There's no other explanation for that because... I'll tell you, I have a bad habit of never buying condoms and I've shot dope in some of the nastiest places, um, that you could think of both on my body and nasty places that I've shot dope in (laughs) nasty rooms that haven't been cleaned for like a millennia. Um, so I go to visit my mother at the jail, which was always exhausting, emotionally draining. It was very hard, um. I had to go to the central office and get a pass and, you know, all the receptionists are looking at me with this sad puppy dog look like, oh, poor kid. Mom's in jail, you know. Um, and I always felt humiliated leaving early because all the kids were like, John, why do you get to leave early? And I was like, oh, I got something I got to go do. They're like, well, what do you got to go do? I'm like, fuck, I got to go see my mom in jail. <gasps> Your mom's in jail? And I was like, Ugh. So anyway, so I, I leave the school. Now I have a... About a two-hour walk to the county jail, which is why I had to leave so early. Um, I only go to school, really, when I had to visit my mother, I only went to school for like an hour, because I had to leave by 10 to get to the 12 o'clock visitation. And so I take my trek, which was my favorite part of the day, because that trek was amazing for me. I used to just smoke cigarettes and sing to myself as I walked down all these streets, and um, then you you get to the jail and let me tell you something when you talk about uh, class I get there I have to be there at 11.30 for the 12 o'clock visit 11.30 you sign in you get frisked and you are assigned a chair to sit in behind the visitor's glass you know the prison glass And there's a telephone on each side. I don't know if they still do that anymore. I know a lot of them are doing video calls. But back then there used to be just a rotodial phone on either side of the glass that we both picked up at the same time to talk. And um, so here it is. It is 1210. And I am in my assigned seat. By 1240, the prisoners come in. And here's my mother. And... We get to talk and the first thing we always do is put our hand to the glass, which was always really hard for me because it was, it just, it didn't make sense in my head. Like, what the fuck is the point of putting your hand on the glass? It's not your hand. It's, it's a, it's a gesture. But at 15, I was just too fucking angry to appreciate the gesture. And I remember, you know, this is off topic, but I remember one day I came in and, and there's a couple of things I don't like anymore. Right, One is the smell of bleach, because that's all the jail visiting room smelled like was fucking bleach. And I can't stand cinder block, probably because of city schools and city jails. They always have that fucking cinder block that they just paint this thick, disgusting paint over, and they either paint it like vomit green or slate gray. Anyway, it's just god-awful. Um... So to this day, I can't stand to look at cinderblock, and I absolutely cannot stand uh, the smell of bleach. But there's this other thing. I can't stand. Nothing gets me more annoyed than to see handprints or fingerprints on glass. Because visiting my mother, before she got there, I would look up at all of these handprints and I didn't know what to feel. I just was in awe how many people have put their hands to this glass. And it was always like the one time I got really sad. I didn't cry until I left. I never cried until I left, but I always cried. Um, but I remember seeing this tiny hand, like a baby's hand. And it was in a whole bunch of different places. Like the baby was banging on the glass. And then there was a smear. Like like the child had to be dragged away from the visiting glass. And it broke me. It just fucking broke me. Um, so I visit my mom. My mom comes downstairs. And then we have to go through this whole ritual. Where she shuffles in. Glass around. Uh, uh, chains around her legs. Chains around her waist. Handcuffs. And then when she gets in. The guy pulls out the, the key. He's got to look for the key. He's like, oh, motherfucker, we only got 20 minutes as is. So 12.40, now he's jumped fumbling around for the fucking key. And he unlocks he unlocks her feet first. Then he unlocks the belt around her waist. And then he unlocks her wrist. And she rubs her wrist and rubs her waist. And then she runs over to the chair. And she smiles. And she puts her hand to the glass. And I put my hand to the glass. It is now 12.45. I have... And and it has to end early because the new prisoners have to come in for the 1 o'clock visit. So we get to visit for 10 minutes. And this happened every time. I'm telling you, it was, it was the, the most frustrating thing on earth. So we only have 10 minutes. So thank God my mother and I are direct because we ain't got a lot of time here. So my mom goes hey it was a surprise to see you today and I said yeah I, you know I took off from school because I wanted to talk to you and uh I wanted to talk to her about uh, you know how I think I'm an addict I've been going to meetings and I think this is something I need to take care of and uh so I said I, I really need to talk to you it's important and she said what are you gay <laughs> if you're gay just tell me I, I mean John I you know I'm gonna love you just tell me <laughs> and I was like no, ma, why is it every time? Because this, this wasn't the second, this wasn't only the second time she's done this to me. She's done this to me on numerous occasions. But I was like, why do you keep asking me if I'm gay? And she's like, oh, nothing. What is it? And I said, I think I'm an addict. And um, I've been going to, to meetings for that. And she went, oh, thank God. And I said, what? And she said, I, I just, I thought you were going to tell me you were gay. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I sat back in my chair and this was the first time I really grasped the idea of homophobia without ever knowing the terminology of it. Because I just finished telling my mother that I've been shooting heroin during the AIDS epidemic. That both of my, all three of my siblings have tested positive for the virus. My father has tested positive for the virus. And you're just glad I'm not gay? Like, what? Um, I didn't say anything, but I just kind of shook my head. I, I just didn't get it. And she said, John, don't get me wrong. I mean, if you were gay, I would love you. I just don't want you to be gay. It, it's, it's a tough life. It's a really, really tough life. I've seen what happens to gay people and it's not good. And in my head, I'm just like, well, then fucking do something about it and help the gay people, you know? But I wasn't there yet. Um, So we talked about my addiction and then my mother's like, John, you're not an addict. You were just going through a phase. A phase. I said, Mom, how many teenagers you know go through a heroin shooting phase? <laughs> um, And she was like, I just don't think you're an addict. I just... I don't think you're an addict. And I said, okay, you know, I'm still gonna go to the meetings, but I don't wanna talk about this with you. And the truth was, if my mother accepted my belief and my identification as an addict, it would have forced her to look at all of her drinking throughout the years, all of her drug use throughout the years, because my mother was hella addicted to cocaine. I have no idea how she stayed so heavy, because that woman, forget it there wasn't a bag of coke she wouldn't put up her nose um but anyway so we had this really short visit and then afterwards I left and I usually get something to eat and then head home yada 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 but in the meantime I also haven't told my mother that I have been sexually assaulted um by a 34 35 year old man I think I was I wasn't, yeah, I was 16. I was 16 at the time, maybe 17. Um, and I, and I want to say first off, right? Um, and this may sound like in defense of my abuser, but it was a different time. We didn't talk about coercion. So was I sexually assaulted? Absolutely. Was it considered sexual assault back then? No. Um, we had just started talking about date rape and what the hell that means. And still nobody understood what it means. You know, um, even back then, I remember they gave us like pamphlets on it and we had to try and talk about it and understand it. And I'm like, wait, she liked him. She went back to his house. They fooled around and then she left and wasn't sure if she wanted to fool around. I don't get it. Um, but I was a kid, you know, what would I get? But anyway... So I had been sexually assaulted around this time and I couldn't tell my mother because I knew if I told my mother, she would want details. And if I gave her the details, I would have to consider the fact that, yes, maybe I am in fact gay. Um, Because the way my mother would see it was the way that I saw it. I knew he was gay when I was hanging out with him. I went to his house to hang out with him. Um, You know, he started touching me and, Doing things to me and I didn't say no. So I must have wanted it. And then the part that really fucked my 16 year old mind up was I had an orgasm. And the fact that I had an orgasm made me feel so vulnerable and questioning and confused and scared Um, you know, I was like, how am I going to tell my mother I'm gay? I mean, I must be gay. I had an orgasm. You know, I came, so I must be gay. And it was so hard for me to wrap my brain around it because this was 1986, 87, somewhere around there. How do you, you know, how do I tell all my friends? You know, and I had seen so many shows where a person says, like, they come out and they're like, I'm gay. And all the friends are like, why didn't you tell me? You know, uh, I don't want to be friends with you now. You know, ew. And all of that stuff, you know. But I just I just held on to it. And from that point forward, I knew I was attracted to women, but I was like, I must be bisexual. Because there are parts where I did enjoy it after you know telling him no, I didn't want to, no, no, and then he just kept you know pushing, pushing, and then things ended up happening between us. He ended up going down on me and and that was that, and I just remember feeling strange and he gave me money, and I think the money was just to you know put me at ease. I think he gave me like seventy five bucks and I needed the money, man, My mom was in jail, my father was nowhere to be found um I needed that money, so I wasn't gonna say no um. But then I remember him telling me, like, if, uh, you know, if you ever need some money, just come on over. And I was like, that's gross. Like, no, you know, and I didn't say anything, but, you know. And after that time, I had started hanging out with this gentleman a little more regularly because I felt like this must be where I belong. And I remember talking about it in meetings and nobody had an answer. Um, I remember talking about it with friends in recovery and I told them who with and everything and nobody even batted an eye. They're like, oh yeah, that's just Robert, (laughs) you know. Um, And to this day, I don't know how to feel about it, you know. Um, I cried once about it and it was probably, I was at, I was a student at Virginia Commonwealth University and I remember it was the, um what are they it's the first one I had ever attended the take back the night and when a bunch of people get up and tell their stories about being sexually assaulted and uh I did not get up there, but I had at that moment i had I had an epiphany at that moment that I was sexually assaulted. I didn't know until I was forty five years old that I was sexually assaulted at 17. Like, for years and years and years, I just thought I had this tryst, you know, at 17 with this 34-year-old guy. And even though I had told other people by that point, because I had, at that point, I had started dealing with my own misogyny and and the harm that I had caused women. Um. So I knew what coercion looked like, I knew what victimization is I knew what abuse is but I just blocked it all out and so I'm sitting at this take back the night uh gathering and all of a sudden I just started hugging myself and I had to sit on the floor and I got into this like you know my knees up to my chest you know and just ribboned my arms around my body and I just remember wanting to be small and smaller and smaller you know Years go by, and uh, getting back to the story at hand. Years go by, and um, I am now 24 years old. And now, mind you, since I was 17, I have come to the conclusion that I must be bisexual because I had slept with this guy. Um... So I am about to get married. I had become Muslim by then. Um, The autobiography of Malcolm X will do that to you. So so I had uh, joined the ranks of Islam and um, I met this woman and uh, we got married like right away. Like I knew her maybe three months and we got married. Um, And I felt guilty because I had never told her this belief I had. Now, I hadn't been with any other men, but I had started hanging out with a lot more queer people because I convinced myself that I was queer. Having never been with any other man but my abuser, still, I had an orgasm, so it must be real. So, I pulled my wife uh, to the side shortly after we had gotten married, same day. And I said, Look, I got to tell you something. I said, I, I think I'm bisexual. I don't know, but. And she flips. This is a black woman in 1994. Um, so I, I told her, I think I'm bisexual. And she almost like walked away from me. She was like, Well, I don't know how you couldn't tell me. I would have never married you, da 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 da. Um, never having uh, given her any context. Um, Never having talked about it, um, she just went off of me. About a couple hours later, we put it behind us. We'll talk about it later. And we went to a New Year's Eve ball. Because I remember I got married on New Year's Eve. And so we go to this New Year's Eve ball. And a lot of my friends are there. We're having a great time. Um, My wife is off talking to her friends. And I'm on the dance floor. When all of a sudden... You know, midnight hits. I go find my wife. I kiss my wife. And then I go back out on the dance floor real quick. And one of my friends, his name was Steve. I said, um, Steve, do you have any New Year's resolutions? He, he said, Yes, I'm coming out. And I had known he was gay, but he didn't make it public yet. But I mean, he was, you knew. <laughs> you just knew. Um, but he said, I'm coming out. And he grabbed me by the face and shoved his tongue in my mouth. And we kissed in the middle of this New Year's Eve ball. A lot of my friends, I mean, most of the people there I knew. And all these people saw me kiss this guy, Steve, on the dance floor. And I kind of backed up and was like, yo. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I just, I'm so excited. And I laughed and he walked away. And I didn't think twice of it. And I walk over by my wife my wife didn't see it. And everybody who knew us didn't say a word. Nobody said a freaking thing. And I couldn't believe it. it I It was like in the middle of a ball on New Year's Eve. So um, that's a story, you know. But I digress. Other than being one hell of a Prince fan, there was... I'd always admired Prince because I thought it was so courageous that he would wear mascara, eyeliner, a little bit of makeup. Um, his clothes were flashy and sometimes, you know, uh, played with the line of, of the binary, you know, um, he had on heels all the time and, you know, he just wore these elaborate blouses and his pants were always skin tight. And I remember, um... We, my, my mother and I saw Purple Rain together and my mother said oh god he's such a faggot I don't know why people believe that he's actually dating all these women and I was like mom stop and she would be like John he's a faggot just he's a faggot that's all it is so I knew how my mother felt about queerness period um, if a woman was a lesbian you know and she had the crew cut and the boots on and you know she would always be like oh that fucking bull dike and I, my mom had this horrible mouth about it and at first I thought that's what you were supposed to say right but as I got older I realized that my mother was like really hateful towards queer people and I had no idea why I mean she had a couple of friends that were queer but she didn't like she really didn't have respect for queerness you know she so didn't have respect for their sexualities their their chosen dress whatever so anyway and only got like 15 minutes left so time goes on and uh i end up going uh to rehab right um a year and a half ago by the way and um i remember i was in rehab maybe a month, month and a half, and I was I was supposed to be there three months, so I was about halfway through, and I went to this queer group, and I remember I was embarrassed to go in there, but I just knew in my heart of hearts I knew there was something about me. I didn't know what it was, um, but there was something like I wasn't I wasn't really attracted to men. But I am attracted to my femininity and I had gotten remarried and my second wife used to tell me all the time, you're you're gender fluid, like you just kind of, you move back and forth between masculinity and femininity and I don't know if you ever realized it, but you are, you're gender fluid. And the the discussion came up one night, we were talking to a friend of ours who was in fact trans and um, I said, you know, I've thought about being a woman, but nah. no. (laughs) You know, I was like, "Mm, no, I like the clothes, but, and my wife, that's when my wife was like, well, you know, you're, you're gender fluid. I've always thought you were gender fluid. I think it's hot. But I had spent my whole life watching, loving, ogling women while they got dressed and while they put on makeup. I mean... It was exciting, it was more exciting for me to watch a woman get dressed than to watch her get undressed, if that makes any sense whatsoever. It was a different kind of excitement, but I was in awe watching a woman put on makeup. I was just in awe of it. And so I'm in rehab and I'm going to this queer group twice a week. And I finally bring up the fact that I'm not sure if I'm gay, but the sexual assault, yada, yada, yada. And... The therapist was like, well, John, you can have an orgasm while you're being sexually assaulted. Your body doesn't know it's abuse. Your body just knows it's sex. And I said, oh, well, then maybe I'm not queer. (laughs) (laughs) And so we, I had learned a lot about gender and a lot about sexuality in college before I went to rehab. Um, And I thought maybe I was genderqueer. Um, And so I, I kept going and... Suddenly it came up uh, about gender expression. And I do tend to be feminine more often than I'm masculine. Um, And so, like, I had all these questions, you know. And and by the time I left rehab, I knew that uh, I was gender fluid, I knew I was going to start wearing more feminine clothes from time to time. And I knew I was going to start wearing makeup. And it came shortly after I came home. Maybe about a month, month and a half after I came home, I started uh, wearing uh, blouses at home and silk tops and um, bigger earrings and things like that. And I just loved it. And I remember the scariest moment was leaving my house. Because granted, growing up in the 80s... I had queer friends back then and a lot of them were beaten to death. Not a lot, but I knew of a couple that were assaulted and beaten to death in the street, um, right around the corner from Christopher Street in New York City. And uh, I remember being petrified. Like I had a, the first time I put on this long skirt, I remember I had a panic attack. Um, I just kept seeing A group of random men on a street corner, at a bus stop, at a bar, anywhere, just see me and beat me to death. Like, that was this overwhelming fear I had. By the time I left rehab, I was already wearing mascara and eyeliner. And I remember there were a couple of of women at rehab that were kind of digging me. And then towards that last week, I started wearing the eyeliner and mascara. They were like, is that eyeliner and mascara? And I was like, yeah. And then they just walked away. Um, But I had a lot of support, especially from the other queer clients in the rehab. And um, I felt strong, you know. So I came home with this understanding of myself and this gender expression. And the last year and a half, I got to tell you, it's hard. Like there are some places that I will go dressed a little more feminine. But when it comes to things like the mall, No. Uh, Speaking engagement at a school? No. Um, At a college? Yeah. But at like a public school? No. Um, I'm afraid to start dating. I'm afraid to... You know, people will see me when I'm not in my feminine dress and a woman be like, oh, you know, hi, here's my number. And I never call because I just know, I know that if she was to come to my house and see all this makeup... (laughs) She would be like, "Uh, yeah, taxi, (laughs) I'm out. Check, please. So I've been dealing with that, you know, um, the loneliness. And that's part of this dark place. Um, I haven't been romantic with anybody for months. And um, the loneliness is hard. This house... It's a small one-bedroom apartment, but y'all, this thing is like the size of a museum when it's quiet. And um, I'm just scared, you know. I'm just scared. There's really no other way to put it. I'm scared I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. And um, yeah, with that, I'm going to start wrapping this up. Um, But I hope this gives you some insight Um, I don't feel like a woman when I dress feminine, but I do feel feminine. Um, and I think that's the difference. I don't, I don't qualify myself as a woman, although I really don't care what pronouns people use. Um, but I'm just, I'm just coming to terms with all of this myself. Like I still, I still have my days where I'm scared to dress feminine and leave the house. Um, even though my friends all know, I'm scared to go visit my friends dressed feminine. Um, I'm scared for my friend's family to see me that way. You know, traditional parents, Catholic, you know, whatever. Um, so it's, it's it, the sphere of being judged has a lot to do with my own personal shame. Um, because you can't insult me unless I already agree with the insult. Then it hurts. Then that's when it really hurts. So I've been working on my shame. So it's 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 not so much I'm afraid of what people are going to say. It's more about I'm afraid what they're going to do, and that is abandon me. I'm afraid to spend these last years of my life alone. You know, um, so that's that's a big fear of mine. You know, um, and it is lonely walking into any establishment dressed the way I'm dressed, because it's not very common, at least not here in Albuquerque. Um, Maybe in New York City or, you know, L.A., San Francisco, maybe I would feel, you know, a little more comfortable. But, um, yeah, it's not a lot of that here. So, (laughs) Um, another thing that I, I just wanted to pass on to everyone... I hate living alone. Um, I've done it now since uh, August. And uh, I can honestly say I hate it. I do love having space for all my stuff. I do love that my roommates aren't going through my book collection. Because that will drive me batshit crazy. But um, I really don't want to live alone. Like I don't like it. Um, And not being in a relationship is, uh, you know... This Father's Day was tough. Um, I wasn't a stepdad this year. I wasn't a husband this year. Um, Mother's Day was hard. I think that's when I started to take a break um, from social media because I, I didn't want to see the words Mother's Day. I still think of nothing but prison glass. But, um, you know, well, I'll, I'll get into more detail about my own personal experiences with queerness, and um, maybe we'll talk about some other stuff as well this week. Um, Sorry I've been gone so long. Thank you for your patience. Um, You know I love y'all. You know I love y'all. Y'all, I love y'all. So um, I'll try not to be a stranger. Um, I was, you know, four days without a phone, so that was another big fiasco. But I'll be on TikTok later today to put on some makeup, and uh, I hope to um, get some voicemail feedback from y'all, um, please consider donating to my GoFundMe. It's on my Linktree, which is uh, on my TikTok page. I also have Cash App and Venmo. Uh, the Cash App is dollar sign John S Blake, and I also have Venmo, which is at John Survivor Blake. And then there is a GoFundMe that you will find on my TikTok page. Um, I could use the support memoirs coming along. And um, yeah, I hope y'all are having a blessed day.